Hey everybody, Rob North here from the Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades podcast. Just saying that if you like what we do and you'd like to support us financially and get access to exclusive content, you can go to patreon.com slash trrpod. As always, hold fast and on with the show. So, somebody presented me with a headline okay. that I think is very, very interesting. I, I have the headline here, and it reads, quote, Ohio man sues after legless juggalo crashes into him with a golf cart. So Adam Batten of Ohio is suing both the Lawrence County, Indiana Recreational Park and Ninjas in Action, the Michigan-based organizers of the 20th Annual Gathering of the Juggalos. Okay, I was kind of wondering who you'd sue. Yeah, after after he was run over by a golf cart piloted by Alexander Leslegs Perkins. Man, he's even got the Juggalo name. Yeah. Was he, like, did he rent the cart or was did somebody else rent the cart? I have questions now. Well, okay, so the, apparently there's not supposed to be any motorized vehicles. However, apparently they the gathering of the Juggalos makes a special dispensation for Perkins... Uh, and how was Perkins piloting a golf cart without legs, you ask? He used a baseball bat. I was going to say, was it was <laughs> he, it a hatchet? He would, no, okay. he, would, he would... I assume he either used a hand to press the bat into the pedals or he braced the bat against one of his stumps. I, I would I think he would know. work the pedals with it. <laughs> so, and that was like the fourth, fourth least weird thing to happen at the Gathering of the Jugglers. That particular... It might be one of the funniest, though. So, carnival of... What was it called? Something Souls? Oh, I, I don't know. I, I'm sorry, Juggalos. But Batten, who clarifies that he is not a fan of Violent J and Shaggy 2 Dope, was traveling around <laughs> on a motorized bike trying to shoot documentary footage, and he said that Perkins came careening erratically the wrong way down a one-way road after dark with the lights off and crashed into him, causing serious bodily, uh, and permanent bodily injuries. Permanent bodily injuries? Yeah. Uh, Perkins maintains that he was stone sober... And simply lost control of the vehicle due to his unique steering system. Uh, Leslegs also stated that it was in fact Batten that was traveling the wrong way on the one-way road. And that he lost control in order to avoid Batten and was consequently tossed from his golf cart and suffered significant bodily injury himself. Countersuit. Very interesting. <laughs> Maybe. I never saw the, the Juggalos as a very litigious folk. I, I don't think they are. I... I I don't know if they decide things by throwing full cans of Fago at each other or what, but who knows. Um, neither Perkins nor the Insane Clown Posse have been named in the lawsuit. Weren't, weren't Juggalos on like the terrorism watch list for a while? Oh, uh, I think so. They were named to it. I don't know if they, they're still on. Oh, I, I doubt but they're still the, on there. The Juggalos were definitely on there. And apparently it's super hard to get on there because we just got white supremacists on here. Yeah. <laughs> Well, oh, I, I know some people who think like they're a cult of it. No, no they're definitely not a cult. Juggles You're giving a cult. them a lot of credit. Yeah, it's it's a subculture, is what it is. Yeah. Now, what is a cult is this thing that um, Kanye is trying to start. Yeah, that's a real ass cult. It's, but a fourteen million dollar ranch in it's a pay to play church, and he's going for tax exempt status. Yeah, Idaho, Wyoming, something like that. He, I mean, he's buying a compound. This is that's always how I figured the story would end. Yeah. This is Taylor Swift warned us, and we didn't listen, and we've got nobody to blame but ourselves. This is this is Jonestown for the millennial age, man. This is going to be, uh, it's going to be so weird. All the 
all the flavor aids going to have to be fair trade in order to get people to kill themselves. Oh God! You um, know what? We need more cults and plagues and like this is not the worst thing that ever happened. <laughs> I'd say we could use a draft, but like at this point, everybody would just be like, "Nah, I'll go to jail." No. <laughs> so yeah, I also find it worth mentioning that ICP could not be reached for comments. Uh, believe me, I tried. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, so that's wow. what's going on in the world. And, and it's, well, it's the one thing going on in the world that doesn't want to make me want to tear my own damn hair out. Speaking of people that make you want to tear your own damn hair out, I'm Rob North. And I am your co-host, Chris Miller. Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. Today, we are doing part three, the final part in our series on Bad King John. So following last week's Empire Strikes Back of it all, we are now... Getting to our return of the stinky, awful medieval Jedi. Yes, and uh, this is the part where we, in uh, 25 years, are going to shoehorn in a song and dance number that nobody wanted or asked for. <laughs> that sounds like just about every episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so let's go over our sources one more time. First, we have King John, Treachery and Tyranny in Medieval England by Mark Morris. Again, read this book if you are interested in English history. He is a fantastic historian definitely probably Britain's preeminent medievalist he is fantastic we also have The Plantagenets by Dan Jones also a highly recommended book I also recommend his book on the War of the Roses and of course all these medieval transcripts or sorry manuscripts of, I've read multiple books on the War of the Roses and I'm still not 100% sure what the hell's going on just think I, I just, it's just so many moving parts just think Game of Thrones but everyone had Scrofula yeah pretty much <laughs> it's so yeah and then of course yeah these chronicles from writers like Thomas of Newbury Gerald of Wales Matthew Paris that are I want to say what are we calling it about 93% bullshit in these things that that honestly might be low uh, yeah it might be a little bit but it, it's been interesting <laughs> trying to parse the truth from the nonsense so when we left off last time, it was 1214 AD, and John Plantagenet, King of England, continued to contend with the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mess that his reign had become. Over the course of his 15 years on the throne, he had managed to lose just about every possession the Angevin Empire had in France, turned about every single one of his barons against him, managed to get himself excommunicated by Pope Innocent III after practically declaring war on the Catholic Church, and that his nephew, his greatest competition for legitimacy, brutally murdered. Some say doing it with his own hands. But things were going to go from bad for John to worse and fast. In the last two years of his reign, civil war would crop up again, foreign invasion would threaten, rebellion would fester, and John's downfall would be swift. This was a pretty common theme in just about every goddamn monarch. So like, oh man, pretty close to civil war, and there's a giant armada. Like, yeah. Just for all of them, he was just worse at handling it than most of them. Just sitting on the beach in the south of England, looking across the white cliffs of Dever, going, "Oh, I fucked up." <laughs> just constantly, like there's people like sharpening knives behind you, yeah. and you're looking out over the ocean. There's just like different colored flags on many boats, just headed your way. That's that's all of British history for like 600 years. So before we pick up where we left off in the story, I want to take a few minutes to talk about John's ruling style and his personal life, because we haven't really gotten into that too much. No, I guess so. I guess I guess we really didn't. Yeah, so John ruled at a time when the nature of kingship for Anglo-Norman monarchs still hadn't been fully defined. Now, John's predecessors had ruled using the principle of vis et voluntas, or force and will, making executive and unilateral decisions, basically arguing that the king is above the law. 
Reinforcing this was the principle of divine majesty, also known as God's mandate, which in short stated that the king ruled not by the decision of or will of any mortal man, but by that of God. And as such, the king and his decision-making was beholden only to God, and not to any temporal law or the will of his underlings. And as such, his decisions were to be obeyed without question. And this ends up giving John an idea of uh, a very imperial status for himself, much like his father Henry II and his older brother Richard Lionheart had. However, John was also king during a period when the military and financial power of the king was derived from the soldiers his nobles provided and the taxes they collected. And the end of the 12th century was a time when systems of common law were coming into their own, and contemporary thinkers and writers spent lots of time and pages on whether or not kings were indeed beholden to these new systems of law, or if they were above them, and what to do when kings refused to obey these new laws. So John's relationship with law and justice was very complicated. His court was peripatetic, which means that the royal court didn't stay in one place for long, and it would travel from place to place, castle to castle, palace to palace, throughout the kingdom in order to show off his power and authority and minimize thoughts of rebellion, which English rulers had done since William the Conqueror. Part of this traveling included dealing with local matters as he went, in addition to handling national matters, and the king would hear cases in his court, often relatively minor in nature. Now, where John was different, however, is that he would continue to hear these small, minute local cases even during times of national crisis and military risk in an almost pathological denial of the greater matters at hand. Now, where the problem truly arises here is that John was often arbitrary and vindictive in his decision-making regarding these cases, and these hearings were an established way for him to contradict the decisions of his barons against whom many of these cases were laid, and to exact retribution in them in a way that was enshrined within the law. Uh, it's also worth noting that these avenues of justice were only available to free tenants and not to the landless peasants that made up the vast majority of the English population. Again, say what you will about John. The guy could mobilize himself a resource. <laughs> and he could he impose could. himself some royal will. <laughs> <laughs> he was, yeah, he was good at that. Again, there's, there's my, my counterpoint to this, my yeah. devil's advocate to this. Now, John was also different from his predecessors in that he favored England more than the French lands, which is something that no... Anglo-Norman king had done before, and he was the first king to spend the majority of his time on the north side of the English Channel, which was popular with the people at large who had spent generations feeling ignored by the monarchs, but it didn't sit well with his barons in areas such as the north of England and the Welsh borders, who, well, these guys, they liked their independence. They liked, you know, they didn't take too kindly to having the gaze of the royal court looking over their shoulder. Uh, so... John's style at court wasn't very popular with the people he depended on for support either. John had a habit of bringing in, quote, new men from outside the ranks of the established baronial families, edging out the men who were part of the traditional power base. And many of these new men were mercenary leaders, famed for their uncivilized behavior and cruelty to the populations of the home counties. Now, the barons perceived the king's new household to have become what historian Ralph Turner called, quote, a narrow clique enjoying royal favor at the baron's expense, staffed by barbarous men of lesser status. Another of John's most prevalent qualities was that he was, was what was known as ira et malevolenta, or anger and ill will. This was an established practice, a that traditional a quality. Totally badass name for a band. <laughs> anger and ill will. Or do you go to say, Latin? Uh, you gotta go Latin. Yeah. And then you can do like the super weird, like, Hairy lettered metal. <laughs> like, 
the, the all the logos that it's just impossible, completely impossible, impossible to read. read. Yeah. yeah. So, anger and ill will is a traditional quality of Angevin kings. Royal ill will was seen as a right of the ruler to express his anger and displeasure at particular barons through a refusal to grant honors, land, petitions, or the use of judicial measures to levy financial punishments on the barons. You could arbitrarily just say, you have angered me, you owe me a thousand pounds. Now John, however, took this to a new level. He leveled harsh fines on anyone he saw as gaining enough power and influence to challenge him and went far beyond his predecessors in the punishments he would lay down for failing to pay. So on one occasion in 1210, one of John's barons, who we've mentioned before, a guy named William de Briose, a fiercely loyal lord who had been the man in whose captivity John's nephew Arthur of Brittany had mysteriously died, fell out of favor with John and was ordered to pay 40,000 marks of silver for his offenses. This is the equivalent of $120 billion in today's <laughs> money. Now keep in mind... That's an expensive ticket, man. Yeah. Well, keep in mind, the yearly income for all of DeBrios' lands were 480 marks of silver. Oh, boy. John's asking for 100 years' income. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, when Brios... De- oh, John when- also is the kind of guy who never knew the value of a dollar. I don't think he did. I don't think he did. So It's one banana, Michael. What could it cost? $10? <laughs> Here's $10. Go see a Star Wars. Man, this is kind of how John plays out. Like he's really just is. he's an amalgamation of every single character on Arrested Development, <laughs> except for Michael, I guess. <laughs> so when William de Brios said that he, of course, couldn't pay, John threw William's wife and son into prison and refused to feed them, and both soon died of starvation. De Brios was ex- exiled to Flanders, and his grandsons were all imprisoned as well, although they were fed and survived their captivity. Now keep in mind, this is a man who, for his and for John's entire reign up to that point, he had been fiercely loyal to the throne throughout all of the revolts and failures in the first decade of John's rule. Now, let's get to John's love life. This didn't endear him to anybody either. So over the course of his first marriage to Isabella of Gloucester and his second marriage to Isabella of Angoulême, John kept a series of mistresses. Now, this in itself was not much of a scandal as kings and high nobles were pretty much expected to have one, if not several, mistresses at any one time. Now, where John goes beyond the pale was having married no was having married noble women as his mistresses, including the wives of some of his more influential and important nobles. I seem to recall a very similar situation in the Chicago Cubs clubhouse. Right. Oh yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was a that was a thing. Yeah. So. This is now seen as absolutely unacceptable. But then again, what are they going to do? I don't know. Ben Zobris was out for like three months. Oh, wait, no. We're talking about the king. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> My bad. I thought you talked about Mrs. Zobrist. Yeah. <laughs> so, John fathered at least five and possibly as many as 15 illegitimate children. Although he did go on to father five children with his second wife, including his heir, Henry III, born in October of 1207. Now, it was said that John was sexually infatuated with his much younger wife, neglecting affairs of state to stay in bed with her well past noon, even at the height of his wars with Philip of France, leading contemporary chroniclers to describe Isabella as a siren or, I love this one, a messalina. Ooh. A messalina. The, uh, after the wife of the Roman emperor Claudius, who was known for her promiscuity and constant plotting. 
Now, despite his horniness for the poor girl, by the it, and again, John was 33 and Isabella was 14 when they got married. John was said to have had to have been nothing short of emotionally cruel to her, and often failed to provide for her household or failed to pass on any of the revenues from her lands. Now, John was also said to have lacked in religious conviction and was known for many impious behaviors, including failing to take communion, constantly blaspheming, and the constant ribbing of clerics about church doctrine, all of which certainly added to his troubles in the church that we discussed in the last episode. Go back to parts one and two to get details on that. Now that we have an idea of what John was like and what the people of his court had to deal with, let's pick up the story where we last left off. So after a crushing defeat by Philip of France, John returns to England with his tail between his legs, to a country where barons in the north and east are organizing yet another rebellion, angered by extremely high taxes and military failures. John began to play for time, courting his old foe, Pope Innocent III, asking for letters expressing explicit papal support so as to pressure the barons to back off and bring the leaders of the English church to his side. But it all ends up being for nothing, because by the time the letters from Pope Innocent arrive in April of 1215, the rebel barons have organized their forces and renounced their feudal ties to John. Calling, them, calling themselves the Army of God, they marched from Northampton and took the crucial cities of Lincoln, Exeter, and finally, the capital of London. The capture of the capital brought a new wave of defectors over from John's court, and John is forced to call on the Archbishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, to try to organize a peace settlement. Now, what would follow would end up being one of the most important, most remembered, and most defining events of John's reign. The two sides... So that's It's one of the most important things that's happened in all ever. of... Yeah, like, in, 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 in all history, of recorded certainly. history. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter where it's from. In all of Western history. So the two sides met on neutral ground in a small water meadow 20 miles west of London alongside the River Thames at a place called Runnymede. And on the 10th of June, 1215... The barons presented their demands to John in the form of a draft known as the Articles of the Barons. And over the next ten days, Archbishop Langton served as a pragmatic go-between, and by the 19th of July, an official charter was issued, signed by all parties, and the rebels renewed their oath of loyalty to John and agreed to surrender London back to royal control. Now, though the, the original name stayed in place, records in uh, several years later would start to refer to this document as the Great Charter, or in Latin, Magna Carta. Now, Magna Carta is considered to be one of the greatest of history's legal documents, and is seen as the foundation of the rights of the populace set against the power of the ruling body. Yeah, I was going to say, it would be great. <coughs> it's great as, as from our standpoint. Yes. If we were John, we wouldn't love it. We would not <laughs> we, love it. <laughs> Well, John was not the only one who didn't love it, as right. we're about to find out. So it takes the form of 63 clauses of demands, all of them intended for a free man rather than the majority of the population that were landless peasants, and in particular, the rights and concerns of the barons are addressed. The document promises the protection of the church rights against the power of the crown, a sort of, which is an interesting form of like proto-separation of church and state, almost. Uh, it asks for protection from imprisonment without charges, um, the writ of habeas corpus, access to a swift trial, rights of inheritance, the rights of debtors, and limits on taxation and other feudal payments without the consent of the governed. It also standardizes measurements throughout the kingdom, uh, reinforces limits on periods of feudal service, 
and the legitimacy of royal charters issued to towns. The most important clause, though, may be Clause 61, known as the Security Clause, where a council of 25 barons would be created to monitor and ensure adherence to the charter and to decide legal issues based around the interpretation of this document. The name this group would eventually come to be known as, decades later after the publishing of the Provisions of Oxford in 1258, would come from the French word for to talk, parlay. The term these councils would... The term this count, these councils would come to be known as later would be a parliament, later anglicized to parliament, a body that still holds sway in Britain today and provides the basis for the congressional system in just about every Western Republican democracy. Now, this would be the only the second legislative body to be convened in medieval Europe after the Althing in Iceland. And Magna Carta's legacy goes further down into the centuries because of the documents it went on to inspire concerning government by consent of the governed. Uh, the provisions of Oxford, which we just mentioned, served the same purpose, reinforcing the rights of the governed in contrast to the authority of the king. When Scotland declared its independence from John's grandson, Edward I, and placed Robert the Bruce on the Scottish throne, Magna Carta served as a basis for the document that would declare Scotland that Scotland would only exist under a king the people consented to having known as the Declaration of Our Growth. Ireland's pleas to the papacy to recognize its independence from the English would draw on Magna Carta as well in the 1317 Remonstrance of the Princes. Magna Carta's call for the limiting of royal power would serve as the basis for all the legal arguments that would lead to the English Civil War in the 1640s, eventually leading to an overthrow of an English king and the replacement of the monarchy by a republic. And Charles I, the king at the time, ends up getting his head cut off and the English Republic is formed with Oliver Cromwell as its leader. If you don't know anything about the English Civil War, I highly recommend taking a look. It is interesting. Yeah. So when the United States was formed, Magna Carta and the rights enshrined within it formed the basis for the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. Magna Carta is still referenced today in British Parliament, and a large monument constructed by the American Bar Association in the 1950s, the big stone pavilion, still stands at Runnymede to commemorate the drawing of the Great Charter. So there's just one problem with this whole thing. John had no intention of actually implementing it, nor did the barons trust that he would do so, so nobody actually ever really tried. The barons didn't demobilize their forces, they kept control of London, and they packed the new baronial council with the most hardline of John's opponents. John immediately went to Pope Innocent for help, who didn't like Magna Carta. He saw that Magna Carta compromised his rights as John's feudal lord from the 1213 Reconciliation Agreement that ended John's excommunication, and he issued a papal bull declaring the charter, quote, not only shameful and demeaning, but illegal and unjust and that the charter was, quote, null and void of all validity forever, end quote. He threatened excommunication... The end. Thank <laughs> the you end. all for listening. <laughs> <laughs> he threatened excommunication for John if he abided by the charter, and he excommunicated all of the rebel barons who had affixed their seals to the charter. By the beginning of October, both the king and the barons had set their forces to march, and once again, civil war had broken out in England. What became known as the First Barons' War was different than anything that had come before them. Instead of using military force to make the king acquiesce to their demands, the rebel barons were now attempting a full dynastic overthrow of the Plantagenets, 
It's not. It's no longer we're going to make John do what we want. It's we're getting rid of the guy. We're going to replace him with somebody who's more in line with our way of thinking. Now, John's forces, led by the exemplary knight Sir William Marshall, had early successes, dividing the barons' forces and raiding many of their homes estate, home estates, and stockpiles of John's cash have been used to hire strong mercenary contingents, leaving the rebels mostly pinned down in the south. Faced with a powerful enemy, the barons began courting who they saw as John's replacement, but this would come from an unlikely place. Their, John's replacement is not coming from their own ranks. Their choice was Louis, son and heir apparent to Philip II of France, and now grandson of Henry II by marriage. The barons invited Louis to invade in order to, quote, prevent the realm being pillaged by aliens, end quote, according to the Annals of Waverly. And at first, Louis was reticent, only sending a contingent of knights to help protect London. But soon, he agreed to land a whole army and take the throne for himself with the rebels backing. Things soon began to turn against John starting in January of 1216 when Alexander II, King of Scotland, ends up making common cause with the rebels. And in North Wales, Welsh King Llewellyn the Great began a rebellion that threatened to cut John's holdings in two. John launched a campaign against Alexander in the north, driving his forces back, but this allowed the rebel barons more freedom of movement and set the stage to allow Louis to launch his invasion. John assembled a naval force to intercept the invaders, only to have the, feet, the fleet ravaged, dispersed, and mostly sunk by strong storms in the English Channel. In May of 1216, at Thanet on the Kentish coast, Louis finally landed with thousands of French troops. John, now outnumbered, fled to Winchester, and Louis marched to London unopposed in company with the rebel barons. At the end of May, he was proclaimed King of England at St. Paul's Cathedral, and the rebels, including Alexander of Scotland and Llewellyn of Wales, gathered to pay homage to Louis. Now this power move led even more of John's supporters to abandon his cause, and the newly strengthened rebel forces, now with the backing of Philip of France, who had remained unconvinced of Louis's plans until his declaration as king, began a slow but unstoppable campaign to retake John's holdings. Over the course of the summer, castle after castle fell, and John's forces were driven back again and again. In September, John launches a counterattack, but whilst on his way to the north to relieve the besieged city of Lincoln, he contracted dysentery on October 9th, his body finally giving way to the relentless riding and campaigning he had undertaken over the past year, although accounts of the time blame poisoned wine, poisoned plums, or a, quote, surfeit of peaches, whatever that means. <laughs> I, I, wasn't there a song about that in the 90s? I believe so. Now, still trying to travel, John set out two days later and took a shortcut across an area known as the Wash, a great tidal estuary fed by four rivers. Disaster struck when his baggage train began to sink into the soft quicksands of the tidal marshes, men and pack horses getting sucked under. Dozens of household servants were lost, drowning in quicksand, as was much of the royal regalia. And some accounts say that the crown jewels themselves were lost in the marshes, and to this day, treasure hunters still comb the soft sands of the marsh, hoping to strike it big. Reeling from this loss, John struggled on for another week, limping from place to place, finally having to be carried on a litter too weak to ride his horse. On October 15th at Newark, sensing the end, 
John wrote a letter to the new Pope, Honorius III, in an attempt to win favor for his successor, his son Henry III. His physician's attempts at bleeding and blistering having failed, John wrote his last will and testament, determining, determining that funds were to be delivered to the church and distributed amongst institutions for the poor for the salvations of John's soul, and aid sent to the Holy Land in the young Prince Henry's name. On October 18, 1216, in Newark Castle, John had his last confession heard by the Abbot of Croxton, who then administered last rites. And John I Plantagenet, King of England, pulled an Oregon Trail and died of dysentery <laughs> at the age of 49, an ignominious end for a king. Now, following John's death, Henry III, who was only nine years old at the time, is named as the new King of England under the guardianship of the legendary William Marshall. In order to help bring the rebel barons back on the side, Marshall agreed that Henry III would ratify the terms of Magna Carta and would abide by them in his rule. And the charter ends up being reissued in 1217, leading most of the barons to defect back to the royalist side. This took most of the power out of the rebellion, and though the first barons' war would continue until September of that year, Louis eventually gave up his claim to the English throne and returned to France defeated. Henry III would go on to rule England for 56 years, striving but failing to avoid many of the mistakes of his father. But that's another story. And so the legacy of John, rather than that of his warrior father or older brother, becomes one of ineptitude and failure, and is most strongly associated with the first significant document that limited royal power in England. He's not been looked at kindly by historians, authors, and playwrights ever since. His kindest portrayal probably being in Shakespeare's King John, which shows him as immensely flawed, but complicated, cunning, and something of a victim of circumstance. His portrayals in more modern media are quite so flattering. Uh, for example, the cruelty he embodies in Sir Walter Scott's novel Ivanhoe, his portrayal by Claude Rains as an effeminate, arrogant, and cowardly uh, villain alongside Errol Flynn in the 1938 film of Robin Hood. And we also have, and this is my favorite portrayal of John Robin Lee. Men in tights. <laughs> well, no, sorry, second favorite. <laughs> as the thumb-sucking effete lion in the animated Disney's Robin Hood from 1973. Oh, yeah, that's right. Where, very unlikable character, but a fantastic voice acting performance from Peter Ustinov. Mm -hmm. We also have Robin Hood Men in tights. <laughs> Which I, I love. I still it love gives that. gives me such a headache. <laughs> What's that guy's name? Richard something? Uh, Richard. We'll come back uh, to Richard, it. Richard Lewis? Richard Lewis. Yeah. Thank you. And um, <laughs> and then you also have uh, Oscar Isaac making him an absolute unrepentant asswipe in that terrible version of, Russell, of uh, Robin Hood that Russell Crowe put together. You know, man, I own that movie and I've never finished it. Yeah. I put it on and I just immediately fall asleep. Just every time. I have it's, no idea what happens. None. It, it ain't the best. No. It's just so incredibly boring. Like, I can't even say that it's bad because yeah. nothing happens and I just fall asleep immediately. Also, I guess it's like four hours long. Yeah. It's it's a long movie. Um, yeah. most The longest I've gotten in is like 20 minutes yeah. and I just fall asleep. So, historians will continue to argue their points, but I don't think you and I will on today because that's the end of our story of Bad King John. Yep. 
So what what are you taking away from John? Because I'll bet my takeaway was different than yours. Um, I don't know. I think we might have had the same kind of reaction of at least questioning whether John was really that bad. Some of these stories are just so completely overblown. Now, I, I mm-hmm. his legacy will always be one that he ba- he pretty much consistently failed. Yes, forever. But then, I mean, they called him Soft Sword because oh, oh his dick's little and he can't get it up. But <laughs> he had fifteen kids, right? And then, uh, oh, he was a his dick may have been little, but he could still get it up. Right? Yeah, it was fine. Yeah. <laughs> it barely worked. But then they, you know, talking about like, oh, he's he's a, a lousy commander. He marched eighty miles in forty eight hours yeah. in, in Mirabel. That's tough to do with a medieval army. Yes, it's tough to do. It's with almost a unheard army. of. The uh, pressing the siege of Rochester Castle. Uh, a guy named R. A. Brown. I've never seen a human being write more books than this dude. Yeah, and it's all on siege warfare of the period. It says that it was the greatest operation in England up to that time. Uh, he supposedly I mean, he first used the have? trebuchet on English on, on the British. Yeah, um, the siege of uh, Chateau Gaillard to twelve oh three. Yeah, it was a simultaneous assault from land and sea, and it was called a masterpiece of ingenuity. Yeah. It worked. It even worked. his even his and invasion have, have of France. Seen, have you ever seen pictures of Chateau Gaillard? Yeah, dude, it is it is unbelievable. I believe the words an imposing citadel. It looks Works like an oil painting. painting. Yeah. Like I thought it was fake. I thought you know you will see these like uh the hell is that the dog? That's <laughs> the dog. What did you think it was <clears throat> No, my furnace has been like making weird noises <laughs> again. Um like the the he had a, a twin pronged invasion of France. Yeah. Ultimately it didn't work that way, but it did achieve its aim. Like he divided the forces and he made he made like inroads. Yeah. He managed to it worked to a degree. He was not totally useless on the battlefield. Yeah, I, I agree that he was not as as bad as a. Commander he said before, as, even Philip Augustus, who's yeah. widely regarded as one of the best monarchs in Europe, did a lot of the same things he did. Yeah, you know, he, he there was never a set piece battle. It didn't make any sense to there do. There was really that. only one. Now it didn't go John's way. Mm-hmm. In fact, it went Philip's way. In uh, on <laughs> in pretty, quite a pretty fashion. overwhelmingly, yeah. yeah. Now, so yeah, I, I I completely agree that I think John was not given enough credit as a commander. One question I would counter with, though, is how much of it is his tactical decisions? How much of it is those of men like William Marshall? He did have he did have the benefit of having a man like William yeah. Marshall. How how much of it is are these guys like William de Brios and William Marshall who are actually working for them? Mm-hmm. Um, and he. he and the, the interesting thing, too, about John, it, beyond the military level, is he had this weird sort of schizophrenia approach to kingship. Yeah, and, he was he was very much, and you know, we said it earlier, Yeah, that he really liked imposing the royal will. He, yeah. He, he was a big fan of doing that. And he's, but he's also, I will give him, I, I will be, I will lay off the criticism of him here a bit because... I think he is definitely a victim of circumstance at this period because this period when his dad, his brother, John, you know, his son, Henry, when they are, you know, this middle part of the Plantagenet dynasty, this is a period where 
you are in this weird limbo of exactly trying to figure out what the role of kingship is in England, specifically. To be the king of England at this time is to face a serious challenge as to the power of the king within that within that feudal uh, within that feudal environment. Like, yeah. I don't think we can. And it's a lot of the things that brain trying to figure out how to how to make it work. Yeah, I mean, and a lot of things that that royalty would do that a lot of monarchs would do is they were very heavy handed with a lot of things, yeah. and I think he was kind of playing that part. And I think he enjoyed that part too much. Oh, he definitely had some personality. Issues. Definitely had some personality issues. But like uh, I, Matilda de Breos, so whatever was... they said, he like he uh, he starved them to death. And I don't remember what castle it was. The Corf? Yeah, Corf Castle. Okay, yeah. Where they said that uh, they opened the door and she was like eating the dead child. Mm-hmm. She like like, no, that absolutely did not happen. happen. And the only reason she was still there is because she wouldn't offer her sons as hostages. That's what you did. Yeah. That's what you did all of the time. Uh, you know, he got, they talked about what a monster he was for saying that he wanted the, uh, the, the, the males among them to be, to have their, their, uh, what is it? Blinded and castrated. Yeah. Everybody was blinded and castrated. Sometimes like they'd remove their nose and shit like that. His dad did that to 22 people. Yeah. His father did that to 22 <laughs> Welsh, Welshmen. Like, that happened all the fucking time. Yeah. Richard, whenever they they got into a pissing contest about the uh, about Acker. Yeah. He beheaded. he slaughtered twenty seven hundred Muslim Saris. Muslim prisoners. Beheaded them on the walls of Acker. Yes. Like. <laughs> well, the yeah. Nat, the Nats oh. just blew this one open. Yeah. You you have to. I, yeah, I understand the need to be heavy handed, and the problem we have too is that with a, especially with a medieval subject is we have to rely on these contemporary chroniclers for their mm-hmm. information. And the problem with the chroniclers is we can't rule out significant bias against John contained within these writings. Well, a lot of these guys that were writing at the time were in open rebellion against yeah. the man. And that's another. There were there were 197 baronies in yeah. England. Only and a lot of them, and for the most part, they're also monks. Mm-hmm. They're churchmen, and John's 39 with the church was not the best. were in active opposition. Yeah. 39 of 197 were in active opposition. We have to remember this is a civil war, so there have to be people on his side, Sign. and it was probably about equal. Yeah. And also, how many chronicles were written favoring John that were lost? Yeah, wait, what destroyed? happened to them? Exactly. They were probably destroyed. I mean, we have a little over 800 years of history in between when John died and, and the present day, and mm-hmm. What does that do to the narrative? Yeah, like I said, I think John is his villainy. Mm-hmm. I think, for for lack of a better word, um, is written by the victors. Yeah, big time. Like I definitely think that that he got the short end of the stick. Yeah. on this one. Do I think he was a dick? Yeah, I really do. Absolutely. Well, you, you look yeah. at his upbringing. You know, he's surrounded by family feuding. I mean, the Plantagenets. Especially when John was a kid with his four older brothers, right. they are the textbook definition of a dysfunctional family. And he was handed the reins of the Angevin Empire, which, let's be honest, at the time, completely ungovernable. Yeah, just totally. You can't you can't have half of a crumbling empire in you a different country. Li- <laughs> literally on all four sides. Yes, you yes. are. You are surrounded by... Scotland to the north. Completely ungovernable. Scotland to the north, Wales and Ireland to the west, 
You have Castilian Spain and the Moors to the south, and you have Philip Augustus on your east. That was so bad. You're trapped. That he petitioned the Moors. <laughs> Man, that went, would have been nuts. Hey, that, listen here. I what can make a, this place a Muslim country if you're willing to send me some help. What a fascinating like thought piece that would be. Yeah. We talked about that last week. Yeah, like, and I, I, as I was like going back over my stuff this week, the whole time I was everything. thinking, like, it changes everything. It changes all of history. I mean, Magna Carta had a tremendous effect on history up until this point. <laughs> but good Christ. Oh, I could. Yeah, we'd be watching the 700 Club with Imam Pat Robertson. Yeah. <laughs> Christ. There we go. Like, what, what an yeah. absolute... Like, what a game changer that would have been. Yeah. It's so, here's here's my final take on John. I think he was an able enough administrator. He's definitely a clever man. And he's a much better war leader than we than the chroniclers give him credit for. I think he is overambitious. I think he can be rash at times. And I think he had distasteful and sometimes dangerous personality traits. Mm-hmm. And, but I, you know, when it comes to... The fact of the matter is, he did lose all of that territory. Oh, yeah. The Ottoman Empire Very, very collapsed. quickly. We can put him definitely in the failure column. I mean, he's... Oh, unequivocally. Yeah, definitely in the failure column with, like, Edward he, II, Charles He the was first. a bad king. Yeah. yeah, he he was not good at it. Was he the worst? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I think... He... Um, I mean, you, you will be able to count him among the worst. But yeah. as far as, like... History's greatest villain? I don't think so. No. Like, I, I think we can very, very confidently put that one to bed. Yeah, everybody wants to paint him as this Bond villain in Ermin. That's how I saw it. That's how I saw it until I started reading it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's what happened with John Paul Jones. He's mm-hmm. we, Oh, yeah, for sure. But yeah, it turns out he was I a real happened, dick. Yeah, but <laughs> this happened in, a, I think, a bit of the other direction. Um, You know what? I, yeah, the whole bad King John is misleading. So what do you say we... New term, bad at being a King John. I can live with that. I don't think he's I can very live good with at that. It. Like I said, I I don't think he was as bad as history has painted him, and I'm honestly shocked at that. Yeah, because we're going to get into some people who were probably as bad as history painted them, and the more you dig in, even worse. Yeah, it gets way worse. Yeah, I mean, like, think about Attila the Hun. Think about everything you know about Attila the Hun. I want you, dear listener. To go read an article about Attila the Hun, find one thing you didn't know, and I guarantee it's fucking worse <laughs> than all the shit you did know. Oh yeah. So yeah, that uh, that wraps up our three our first three parter. Our first three parter. We got there. The trilogy. The trilogy on bad at being a King John. <laughs> That's a little. Eh, I don't know. That's too. It's many not items. quite as snappy. It doesn't. <laughs> It's, it doesn't roll it off the tongue quite as easily. <laughs> so yeah, thank you everybody for uh, listening over this this trilogy series. Uh, j- single, just a simple one parter next time. But uh, also thank you to everyone who uh, has donated to our Patreon. If you would like to throw a little financial support behind what we do, it is very very appreciated. Every little bit helps. You can go to www.patreon.com slash TRR pod. You can also find us on, follow us on social media, Chris. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast TRR 
Uh, you can find us on Instagram at trrpod. If you search These Rogues and Renegades on Facebook, I promise you can find us there. And if you have anything that you might like to submit, any questions, anything you might like to provide, uh, any feedback, whatever you'd like, hit us up uh, with an email, uh, trrpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We, we would indeed. Uh, yes, thank you to everybody for listening. Thanks to our friends, the Bloody Seamen, for letting us use their incredible music. Um, big thanks to everyone who continues to make donations in the name of our friend Jason Rollison to the American Cancer Society. Big. Uh, yeah, big actually, uh, I got our cashier's check today. Yeah. I had everything on my end go through. I had everybody's, uh, like all their donations, all the Venmos, PayPal's, and shit, uh, waited for that. So uh, over $2,000 we raised for Jess at the party. Yeah, it's a big thing. Yes, thank you for everybody who continues to donate, um, honoring his memory. Uh, yeah, I did. I, I did have some people uh, ask me afterwards uh, if they could donate to to Jess, and uh, I've been directing everybody to make um, contributions in in Jason's name for the American Cancer Society. This is by Jess's request, uh, right? Uh, she did that in lieu of flowers, but um, that was that was uh, what two weeks ago. But uh, yeah, if you would like to pledge your support. Uh, Please do that. I'm sure it would really embarrass Rollo, which is always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks everybody for that. So next time we are going to be uh, we're going to be taking a, a big old time leap forward, about 800 years. Just about. Just shy of it. We're just getting back. Yeah, we're getting back into the 20th century. We're going to be looking at a very very interesting character and case. Or characters? Or characters. Yeah. It's interesting because nobody really knows what's true. Yeah, we're going real conspiracy theory. Get your tinfoil caps on. True crime and conspiracy theory with the story of D.B. Cooper. Our friend Kyle will be joining us for that. Ah, son of a bitch. Yeah. Hey, hey, hey. (laughs) He has to be let out of the basement. I'll let him out of the basement. (laughs) Chained to the radiator. I hate going down there. (laughs) So, yeah, we'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And, of course, until next time, barons, kings, peasants, and knaves, hold ye fast.